Today we're finishing up a four-time series on sin, a subject that I know a lot about. I hope it's been helpful to you. Um, first of all, we asked, what is sin? And, and my understanding of sin is ultimately it's a refusal to submit to God as God. It is, it is a declaration by our actions, our thoughts, our attitudes that we know better what's best for us than He does. Every time I disobey Him, I am explaining to God that I know better than He does. I know what's best, and He just needs to watch and listen, but it doesn't ever come out well. But that's the essence of sin. That's why the first commandment, the Ten Commandments, was acknowledge Him as God. That is the essence of our struggle in life, is submitting to Him rather than something else. Then we ask, what do we do about the sin in our lives? And, and the reality is that we humans struggle with sin, right? Even Christians, we, we still, as long as we're in this flesh, this body of flesh, we will struggle with the frailties that come from that. That is universal. Satan tries to tell us we're unique in our weakness, but the reality is we're all weak. Paul was weak. Peter was weak. Um, it's, it's a struggle with the flesh, and it's, it's normal that we struggle with the flesh. And when we, when we actively and intentionally sin, we harm our walk with the Lord, and, and all we need to do is go to Him and confess it. He, he readily wants that intimacy with Him restored. And, and just like in a human relationship, if you acknowledge what you've done, he, you create that opportunity for restoration. So what do we do about the sin in the body of Christ? What do we do? And most of us, many of us at least, have some of the greatest hurts we've experienced was when it was other Christians. Because we have such high, high ideals for the church, and yet we discover that the church is full of sinners like us. And, and so many of us have encountered those things that bring disappointment and hurt, and, and how do we respond to that? On a personal level, Matthew 18 says you go to them when someone has offended you, and you have the courage to tell them. And if they are non-responsive, you bring witnesses, and ultimately if it's, if it's a great enough offense, then you, you take it to the elders and... and that's an incredibly challenging thing. But think about the difference it would make if, if we had the courage to restore relationships when there was an offense rather than letting it seethe and grow in us and cause bitterness and resentment. Think about how much we could all grow if we had the courage to look each other in the eyes and deal with our stuff. But it's a scary thing. And then on a church-wide basis, there's, there's this thing called church discipline. There are times when a local church has to uh, instruct someone who is choosing to willfully stay in immorality, and, and that is called church discipline, and, and ultimately it can come to excluding someone from the Lord's table in the fellowship. And uh, hopefully it doesn't happen often, nor, more, more often it happens by people individually going and calling people to repentance, but this church has done it, and, and uh, bodies have done it because, because you don't want anyone to fall victim to their own disobedience that brings great harm, right? That's why discipline is, is worth doing. But today I want to talk about one that I think is really interesting, and that's what's our attitude about sin in the world around us? What's our attitude about sin in the world around us? There, there are two classic ways to respond to the world. One way, the one probably that most of us struggle with, is, is we just become just like the world. I mean, it's, it, it, you know, it, it kind of shapes us. We, we are indistinguishable from the world around us. We fall into its trap. We, we treat Jesus as if he is a small part of our lives that we acknowledge, you know, hopefully 
A couple of times a month we go to church, kind of get it out of the way, and then we can go on and live our lives as if he isn't there. In other words, many of us, we, we become the world around us, so we don't have a problem with sin. It's not a problem at all. It's just life. We intuitively know that's not what Jesus wants, right? But the fact is it's a temptation that all of us have. And sometimes when we see that in ourselves, we, we are so disappointed by what we've done that then we do the other extreme, and that's to withdraw from the world. I mean, we, we get into the holy huddle, you know, only, uh, man, you're tired. You need, you, anyway, I got, you know, those big yawns where you see their tonsils and you, you just put, I, I just, I feel so bad for you. Anyway, the, the, I only do that to friends. <laughs> uh, we get into this holy huddle and, and, and we become irrelevant to the world around us. You know, we only have Christian friends and we only watch Christian movies and we only, you know, send our kids to Christian schools and we, we you know, we can fall into that and, and um, kind of reminds me, and I forgot this in the second service, but it's such a great illustration. Our kids went to West Junior High in Richardson and um, West is a very diverse, go Mustangs. Wasn't it Mustangs? No, Broncos, Broncos. They're horses, you know, uh, that, but they're horses. Uh, West is a very racially diverse school. It has over 30 languages spoken in it. It's kind of the hood, you know what I'm saying, even though it's in suburban. And in fact, one of our youth pastors went to have lunch with Katie, our oldest daughter, and he said, man, that's like the United Nations. In fact, our kids went to University of Texas because I believe in Christian education, and when they had to go in, in uh, student orientation to an to a discussion of diversity, and they said, this place ain't diverse. You need to go back to our junior high and high school to see diversity. The only diversity at Texas at that time was the athletic dorm. I mean, the reality is that, that they grew up in a context where there was incredible diversity. UT is slowly catching up. goes back to Daryl, not at any rate. The, the, it, it's just, you know, the, it was really shocking to be at that school. So I had to remember why I was telling the story. I get caught up in other things, and, and y'all interrupt my thoughts, and then I have to come back. So at any rate, when they played one of the really hotsy-totsy junior highs, it was one of those where everyone was white, and it was high, uh, socially, economically, you know, much higher standard than West. They had a basketball game, and, and the other cheerleaders from the other school came into the gym holding on to each other because they were going to West, and they were so afraid that they might be mauled by, you know, those, those kids. It was a trip. All the kids from West were saying, look at them, that's so funny. You know, sometimes we Christians treat the world that way. We act as though every non-believer is a threat and, 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 and show disrespect and the reality is that betrays all kinds of bigotry and other things that are really harmful. So we either become too much like the world or we, we begin to treat unbelievers as if sometimes they have this moral cancer about them, right? What does Scripture do? What does Jesus expect us to do as it relates to the world? I hope to go through several passages, then I hope that when it's over we have a much clearer understanding First of all, Scripture says we should expect sin in the world. We should expect sin in the world. And the first reason is because we came out of the world. Ephesians 6, 
verse 12. No, that's not the right passage. Uh, Ephesians 2, verse 1. As for, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. We should expect sin because that's where we came from, right? Now, some of you came to faith at really early age, and, and so, you know, your testimony doesn't have stories of drunkenness and, and all of that. But, but all of us can identify with the fact that, that our salvation saved us out of something. And especially those of us who came to faith later, we're pretty, we, we know exactly what it saved us out of. So why would we be surprised that the world is broken? Because we were broken, right? That's why we were attracted to the gospel, because we knew we had a need. And it was that need that drove us to Jesus as, a, as an answer to that need. And so it's kind of odd that the, we would be surprised that the world's a bad place. In fact, Scripture goes on to explain why it's a bad place, and it's, it's pretty startling. Ephesians chapter 6 our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers. We are in a war with evil, and we are incredibly naive when we underestimate that. The fact of the matter is, every once in a while, Satan gives us a glimpse of just how evil, evil is, whether through the Holocaust or genocide in Central Africa or human trafficking today and, and uh, taking advantage of children for the sexual desires of adults. I mean, every once in a while, we get a the curtain comes back just a little bit, and we're blown away how evil is. But men and women, Scripture tells us we're in a battle with evil itself with evil itself. And the prince of darkness is incredibly powerful. And we have no comprehension of just how evil he is. 1 John 5, 18. Uh, by the way, in your Wednesday readings, I, I said read John chapter 5. It's 1 John 5. We know that anyone born of, God, born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God, and the whole world is under control of the evil one. Do you know that? The whole world is under control of the evil one. Now, some of you think, wait a minute, I thought God was sovereign. You know, there, there is a mystery in theology and that's the whole issue of evil. And perhaps the oldest book of the Bible, not the oldest story of the Bible, but the oldest book of the Bible is Job. And in it, we have this bizarre scene of Satan coming into the throne room of God and negotiating with the God about his desire to abuse this righteous man named Job. And then the rest of the book, you have this discussion of, of what's up with that. Why would God allow this? And of course, uh, you know, Job, like many of us, had those friends who had gifted encouragement who said, well, it's your fault, Job. Um, there's always been that gift of encouragement in the body of Christ. Thank goodness for those people. Um, um, 
that condemn people for hard times. That's an incredibly cruel thing to do, right? Um, and, and so you have this ongoing debate about why all the evil. And at the very end, Job finally says, God, sup. Help me here. What does God say? Where were you when I created everything? What's the point? God doesn't have to answer to us. God doesn't have to answer to us. I've read theologies. I've read philosophies. I've studied it, and there are answers, but none of them will ultimately satisfy that question, in my opinion. Ultimately, the answer is God is God, and I'm not. I don't understand it. I don't understand it, but this world is an incredibly evil place because the prince of darkness, First Peter says, he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And most of us don't fear evil near enough because we're so used to it. That's why Satan would prefer that we not see the true manifestations of his evil because he'd rather us be rather casual toward it. We don't truly hate evil until we are the victim of that kind of evil because then we would have to hate the evil that's in us, right? So Scripture says we should expect evil in the world, not become callous to it, not become casual about it, but we shouldn't be shocked by the evil in the world. And it exists in all levels of our society. It exists in our governments. It exists in our businesses. It exists in our families. It exists in our communities. It even exists in the church. Because Satan is alive and a well, and, and he is constantly seeking to bring harm to God's people. So what do we do? We're called to resist it. Romans chapter 6. Romans 5 through 8 is the, a great uh, magnum opus about the Christian life. Romans is, is in many ways the theological textbook of Christianity where the apostle Paul systematically walks through the theology of the gospel, the theology of salvation. The the, it, it's, it's just a, a remarkable book. In chapters 5 through 8, he deals specifically with the Christian life. And chapter 6 he addresses this problem. Interesting, in verses, in chapter 1, 1 through 5, 10, there is not a single command in all of that section of Romans. The whole first part of the book of Romans, there is no command. Instead, there is information about our salvation. And then in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, it says the first command, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. I memorized it, consider yourselves therefore dead to sin. Isn't that shocking? Wouldn't you think that when it comes to the gospel, the primary command would be to do something or don't do something? In fact, that's the message most of us have heard through our lives. You know, Christians don't smoke, dance, drink, or chew, or go out with girls that do, right? Um, you laugh. I'm from East Texas. That's the possibility. Um, but when the Apostle Paul wants to instruct us about the nature of the gospel, what does he say? Let the gospel change your identity. The world has figured out, out identity is the hot topic right now, isn't it? How you identify yourself is, is the primary thing. That is shrewd. 
marketing and advertising has always understood that. They don't sell you a bar of soap. They sell you uh, a means to become someone that's socially acceptable because you use their soap. They don't sell you a car to get you other places. They sell you a status symbol that will cause you to view yourself with more excitement. In other words, marketing sells identities because who cares about, I mean, soap is soap, cars are cars, right? Because nothing is more more powerful than how we identify to ourselves. And so all of us have constantly struggled with the temptation to cause something else to identify ourselves. You know, I identify myself based on my, my political party. Really. I identify myself based on my gender, based on my race. I identify myself based on my, my socioeconomic position. I identify myself based on whether I'm an athlete or not. You know, we, we fall into these other identifications. What does Paul say? Identify yourself as someone dead to sin and alive to God. In other words, define yourself based on what God has done for you through the gospel. That, more than anything else, should shape who we view we are. We are the beloved. We are the child of God. And when, when that identity begins to, begins to shape us, it, it, it allows us to have thoughts that are consistent with his truth. When Satan, the accuser, whispers in our ear, we're no good, we say, no, I'm a child of God. When Satan, the accuser, says, well, you can't help yourself, you've got to do that, we say, no, I'm dead to that. That's not who I am anymore. I'm a child of God. In other words, the the first beginning of the Christian life, living it out, is to change who we think of ourselves. We're dead to sin and alive to God. It's our identity. That's why so many hymns, that's so many songs are related to that. Because when when we view ourselves differently, it shapes our lives. So, so we resist it because it's, it's, it's not us. John 17, 15, what's called the high priestly care, prayer. When Jesus prays for his disciples, he says, they're not of the world even as I'm not of it. The world is not their home. I'm just a passing through, the old spiritual said. So much wisdom in the spirituals. James 4, 7, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Sin is a constant reality in our lives, and we are called by the power of the Spirit through our identity in Christ to resist it, to not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So we expect sin, we resist it, but here's the real, we'll talk more about that another time. What, what do we do? What do we do about unbelievers we come into contact with? How do we respond to the world? Do, do we become chameleons that change our color to be just like them? Or do we, you know, so separate ourselves from them that we condemn them by our very... What, what does God call us to do? How does he view the world? I want to look at some passages with you, and they just may surprise you. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 9. The context is judging the immoral character of one of the individuals in the church and calling the church to exercise discipline. But verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 5, it says, I've written you in a letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. But I didn't at all mean the people of the world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. Isn't that crazy? Paul says, 
hey, guys, I'm not saying don't associate with sinners. Everybody's a sinner. I'm not calling you to leave the world, yet so many of us Christians have effectively done that. You know, we, we go to send our kids to Christian schools. We only have friends who are Christians. We listen to Christian radio. We listen to watch Christian TV. We, you know, we, we, we've, we've separated from the world. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not the point. It's just don't walk with a, a person who's claiming to be a Christian and living an immoral life because you'll start becoming like them yourself. But, but we're not called, we're not called to separate ourselves from the world. If we were, then the very moment we became a Christian, God would just rapture us right there on the spot. Poof. Why does he not do that? Because somebody's got to tell the next guy. Which means we have to actually be there, right? In fact, he goes on and says something pretty powerful. Verse 11, but now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slander, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, don't eat. Verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? God will judge those outside. Isn't it amazing how quick we in the Christian church sometimes are to judge the world around us when all they're doing is being true to who they are? I think we often do it out of insecurity. But, but the reality, that is not our calling. Even the Apostle Paul said, that ain't my job. That ain't my job. Matthew 9. How does Scripture tr- view the unbelievers. Let me give you a couple of insights. Matthew 9, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many of the tax collectors and sinners came out. You know, the King James said publicans and sinners. We used to have a, a Republican state senator here, John Leadham, and I always read it as Republicans and sinners, and he thought it was funny. He didn't realize it was a, never mind, it was just kind of fun. Uh, many tax collectors and sinners came out and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know, that's one of the greatest accusations against Jesus is he is nice to bad people. How dare he? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy you need to doctor, but the sick. The lost in the world aren't evil. They're victims of evil. They're sick. Just like we were apart from Jesus. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. No, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. They don't see. They don't see. That's why you can tell them a biblical perspective and, and, and they look at you like a cantaloupe is growing out your nose because they, they just don't see it. They just don't, they don't, it's, 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 Satan has blinded them. Ephesians 4, 17. 
I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. They, they don't, they're ignorant. They don't know. Notice none of those things make them evil. They're victims of evil. They're products of the world in which they live. So we, we don't demonize them. That's going through the hospital. That's like walking through a hospital and saying, all you sick people deserve it. They're, they're sick. They need a physician. We need to introduce them to the physician, right? Not condemn them. The only people Jesus really condemned were the preachers. And I've gotten to know some, and I understand. In other words, we're responsible for our actions. Scripture clearly teaches that. But the unbeliever are not people that we should be condemning. They're people that we should be loving like we were loved and telling the story of the one who gives grace and peace and frees people. They just don't know anything else. So how do we respond to them? Well, I, there are some great passages here. I really like these. Colossians 4, verse 5. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. According to Scripture, every opportunity we deal with unbelievers, is an, every one is an opportunity where we can be wise and use that as a way to introduce them to the one who gives peace. So that informs how we, you know, we, please, please, I know none of you would do this, but please don't pray before a meal in a restaurant and then not leave a tip, but instead leave a gospel track. Please, golly, it's awful. It's awful. That's, that's not taking an opportunity. That's, well, it's an opportunity for something, but it's not good, right? I mean, it affects the way, uh, I'm, I, I kid you not, it, it affects the way I, I do business with people. I kind of love to negotiate. It's kind of fun. But, but we had a guy that used to trim trees for us. And, and you know, he was, just try, he was just struggling to survive. And, and it was really tempting to really negotiate him down. But I thought, you know, I don't want him to think that's what a Christian is. I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't treat him bad. I, I didn't even throw money at him. But... but it's an opportunity to represent Jesus, right? And if, if we're always taking every opportunity to take advantage of other people, what do they think Jesus is like? You know, how do you talk about to your and about your neighbor? The people at work, you know, I mean, sure people at work are annoying. Pray for the people that work with me at the church. I'm seeing Rachel back there and she's weeping. I mean, the, the reality is that... Um, you know, but it's all a divine opportunity to represent Jesus. And the Apostle Paul says, make the most of those. Make the most of those. 1 Timothy 3, 7. And speaking of the requirements for a leader in the church, it says he should have a good reputation with outsiders. He should have a good reputation with outsiders. Isn't that fascinating? It matters how the world views us. 
Sometimes we Christians use the fact that the world isn't our home and say, well, it doesn't matter what they think. And then we feel free to be jerks in the name of Jesus. And, and the Apostle Paul would say, don't do that. You represent Jesus. Make the most of every opportunity. Um, I, I didn't tell this story in the other two services, but I, I like y'all more. The, um, we lived for a while in the great city of Henderson, Texas, in Rusk County. Rusk is the county seat of Cherokee County. Henderson's the county seat of Rusk County. It gave us the lovely Miss Fricaro is from Henderson. And, and we went to a little independent church. And, and in Henderson, everyone's Baptist. There are two or three different kinds of Baptists, but they're all Baptists. And, and so um, people said, where do you go to church? And I said, well, we go to Westminster Bible Church. And, and I literally had people turn around and walk away from us because we weren't Baptist. You know, it was kind of tough. But I'll never forget one person said, I know Delbert. And Delbert goes to that church, doesn't he? I said, yeah, he does. He said, you know, I think that's a strange church because it's, it's ecumenical. I'm like, do you mean ecumenical? He said, but if, he said, if, if Delbert goes there, it must be okay. That's what he's talking about. Have a good reputation with the outsiders. 1 Thessalonians 4.12, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders so that it will not be dependent on anyone. In other words, we, we go into the world and we realize it's broken. There's no question it's broken. We expect that it be broken. But we have the opportunity to represent Jesus in the brokenness, and we should treat them in a way that's it's consistent with what God has because the, what's the ultimate passage about the world? Matthew 28, 18 and 20. Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to serve all that I have commanded you. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the earth. That every opportunity is a divine appointment that gives us the privilege of introducing other people to the one who gave us peace when we were struggling. To the one who offered us forgiveness, even though he knew our brokenness. To the one who forgives the darkest of hearts and redeems the most broken of lives, we dare not treat the world in a way that pushes them away from Jesus because that's all they want. We should so identify ourselves with what Jesus has done that every moment of life is an opportunity to represent him in a broken world. And sure, they're sinners. Who isn't? One person. One person. And all too often, we're like little cheerleaders going into a diverse gym thinking it's dangerous because they're different. But the reality is we live in a world full of people that just need to know that Jesus is real. And God is in control. And there's hope for the loneliness and hurt that is the human condition. So that, so that we, we take on the identity of being his children. And that shapes how we respond to other people. Because we have compassion to them because you know what? They're no different from us. They just need to know Jesus.
God forbid that we come across as judgmental. Because our very gospel says the reason we're Christians is we came to realize just how broken we were. God forbid that we get consumed by the world around us. So people are looking for Jesus and all they're seeing is you and me. We have the privilege in all our flaws to point people toward Jesus. What more could you ask? Please pray with me. Father, we confess that the world can be a scary place. It is truly evil. The reality is that we struggle in how we respond. Sometimes we're no different from the world. And the world looks at us and says, so? And sometimes in our fear of the world or in our judgment of the world, we treat them in a way that's inconsistent with your love. Lord, I pray that we would be men and women and children who live our lives in a way that brings the respect of those around us, even if they don't understand. And that in doing so, we'll point them to you. They won't be amazed at how good we are. They'll be amazed at how glorious you are. In Jesus' name, amen.